Hey y'all, it's Crystal. And it's Samantha. And this is Serial Holic Sisters. True crime shit. What's up, girl? Hey. Hey, girl. Hey. What it do? Well, you see, what had happened was. <laughs> <laughs> y'all. <laughs> Basically having a really rough time right now. We're like, and okay. By time, I mean, it's ridiculous. We're like, let's sit down to record. Uh, we gave about an estimate time. It's probably an hour past the latest time that we estimated yeah oh just about and it's actually and it's fun. fine it's fine we were going to start like 45 minutes ago but see what had <laughs> happened was I was getting all comfortable getting set up doing all that good stuff you know and had myself my own little uh drink and decided to spill it all over the couch which had was- a lid her had drink a lid. had a lid and she spilled mm-hmm. it and sat in it because that was smart that was really smart so but she's it's fine everything's fine we're gonna have a nice I was so ready to like jump on here and be like oh yeah I'm so ready I'm eating my my yellow starburst I got my bougie drink nobody likes nobody likes yellow starburst besides you by the way nobody on the face of the planet likes yellow starburst the best kind um <laughs> I don't know who invented the yellow starburst because it is not lemon I like lemon flavored and that is not like lemon. lemon you are high it is lemon. <laughs> that is not lemon not to mention so I'm sitting here eating eating my also, when I came to visit you for Thanksgiving when I came to visit her for Thanksgiving I had I brought her like a bag of just lim- of the and yellow starburst that's what I was eating that's what I was eating <laughs> I was eating my stash of lemon starburst because I have to hide them for my children and then I'm like, why would they oh, eat them? <laughs> they're good. And then I'm like drinking my little bougie drink, which it's a non-alcoholic wine. And by non-alcoholic wine, I mean sparkling grape juice. I thought you were going to say, <laughs> I mean water. <laughs> yes. No, I am drinking not non-alcoholic wine. I have well, a nice red Moscato, a nice barefoot was, red Moscato. I was all excited. Like I'm sitting here like snuggling in literally almost entire bottle fit in that drink and it's oh my gone God. and it was my last sparkly grape juice bottle that's so sad but thank god it wasn't alcoholic because if it was alcoholic i'd be so mad that you wasted i'd be that. sucking that shit out the couch <laughs> <laughs> we don't waste shit around here we do not we do not not in this family for sure not in this family <laughs> so yeah moral that is she is soggy and we are going to do part two of this terrible terrible case yeah yeah i guess we'll get right in it if you hear me it's just me having to reach you know a mile away to get the the last little bit of my sparkling grape juice (laughs) off the coffee table because it's miles away from me now because i don't trust myself putting it near me (laughs) i mean that's understandable all right so you ready to get mad again Mm mm-hmm Okay, so I'm going to go ahead this week. I'm going to finish up the West Memphis three. Um, it's going to be long, just like last week. So get ready for that because this whole case is just long and infuriating. So here we go. So I'm going to start off where I left off last week. Basically, we ended up on June 2nd with Vicki Hutchison's polygraph, te- polygraph test. Mm-hmm. And so they the the police were positive after that test that they had Eccles and he was their man because you know all the evidence so let's pick up on June 3rd that's the very next day they're like dude 
we've got solid evidence that this was the work of those Satanist kids because we've decided to note in our reports that Vicki has this all figured out. So they decide their next move would be to question Jesse since he's clearly friends with Damon and Jason, even though he told Vicky that he didn't really know them. He just knew of them. But that's just like a minor detail, you know. No biggie. Deal with that later. Whatever. So, Detective Mike Allen, he tells Jesse's dad that he wants to talk with Jesse. His dad is like, Jesse, hey, is that a problem? Like, this detective's here. We want to talk to you. Is that a problem? Jesse's like, no. Like, no big deal. I haven't done anything. Whatever. So Detective Allen drives Jesse to the police department where he fills out like standard paperwork for people that they interview. And then he tells Jesse that he asked some questions for him about the murders. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Jesse's, Jesse's like, okay, sure, whatever. Then he's like, okay, but um, we need your dad to sign some papers before we, we can ask any questions because Jesse's still a minor. So like, why didn't you do that before? But whatever. Well, yeah, of course. Um, right. So Jesse's like, okay, sure. So they leave the police station to find his dad. Like on their way to find him, Detective Allen tells Jesse about the $35,000 reward and that if he knew anything that he could help the police, um, that could help the police that Jesse and his dad would get this money. So he's all like, okay, that's like, that's cool, whatever. Um, they find his dad, they find Big Jesse as he went by, because he was also Jesse Miss Kelly. Um, and Jesse's like talking to his dad, and he's like, Hey, this guy told me that there's all this reward money about this. And his dad's like, Well, if you actually know anything, then go ahead and tell him. And then it, we could get the money and we could buy me a new truck, and that'd be awesome because my truck is crap. So Big Jesse signs the papers that the police need to give Jesse a polygraph test, okay. He did not, however, sign a form agreeing to let Jesse waive his constitutional rights. So according to police records, Jesse was read his rights twice in the next hour, once at 11 a.m. by Detectives Ridge and Allen, and then once at 11.30 by Bill Durham, who is the department's polygraph expert. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so here's another screw up when it came to their police records because Ridge's report said that the polygram exam started at about 10.30. But the time on the waiver of the rights form that Jesse signed um, before the test started said 11.30. So that's like all mixed up, but whatever, you know, they're like, whatever, details, shmeetails, no biggie. Um, anyways, Jesse, like Jesse's dad did not sign a form saying that he could wa waive his rights but they do have the Miranda form, quote, signed by Jesse, that say that he understood his right to remain silent, his right to attorney, and his right that if he decided to answer questions, he could stop at any time. I say, quote, signed, because Jesse printed his name on these papers because he had never mastered cursive because, you know, he, his, like, he was like 72. He, he couldn't actually sign, like he just wrote his name, but whatever, that he clearly understood what he was signing. Um, they then proceeded to hold and question him for over the next 12 hours. And guess what? Only like 45 minutes of that was actually recorded of that well, of whole course. 12 hours. Yeah. Also thinking about this, I'm like, think about where it's at though. It's like this little small, like small town where they can just do whatever because there's nobody like looking up on them exactly 
Um, within those 12 hours, his story changes drastically, like majorly. So when they started out, they asked him if he knew anything about the murders. And what he told him was, he said on the morning of May 5th, that he had seen a small group of young boys on the service road right before school and that a friend had just told him like what he'd heard about the case after it happened because like it was like widely known that all the people around town were talking about it and all that stuff whatever i mean of course when you're asked that question and it's an ongoing case and it's literally like the talk of the town this tiny little town right of course he knows what's going on like he, he of course he knows you. yes hearing so it he thought like he had seen a small group of boys like walking on the service road before school that morning like that's what he'd seen that's like literally all he knew besides like what has been going around town so he's thinking okay i'm gonna tell them this information and that's gonna be helpful and then we can get this remote money like no that's so they're like okay that's what you know let's do this polygraph test which they could do because his dad signed the papers. So after this test, um, Bill Durham says that Jesse showed deception on five main questions. So those questions were, let's see, I lost the questions. <laughs> those questions were, um, <laughs> don't know. <laughs> Here they are. <laughs> okay. Have you ever been in Robin Hood Hills? Have you ever taken part in devil worship? Have you ever attended a devil worship ceremony? Are you involved in the murder of those three boys? And do you know who killed those boys? So according to them, that he, he showed deception in like those five questions. That's according to Ridge, Detective Ridge's official police notes. And uh, that no, that's according to Durham's reading of the polygraph. And then according to Detective Ridge's official police notes, Durham came out of the interview and said, quote, he's lying his ass off. So... And guys, polygraph tests are not a hundred percent accurate. We all know this, especially back then. Like, but so no, polygraph, they're polygraph now. tests for those that don't know, um, depend on your pulse rate. It reads your pulse, it reads your blood pressure. Anybody that's nervous, so their stuff's gonna be out of whack. Any underage child that is nervous about being questioned by police. Shit, I would be nervous being questioned by police, even if I didn't do anything. Because... Oh, no, I know. But I'm <laughs> saying, like, this is an adolescent child. How can... I, I mean, this kid, he's not doing anything wrong, but he's being questioned like he's doing something wrong. Right. And he's a kid. He doesn't, like... He doesn't understand the legal. He has had like he's had of it all. like run-ins with the law and all that stuff, and he he's had run-ins with police. He knows that like he's not supposed to be doing anything wrong and all the stuff. And then they're coming at him and he's and questioning him. He's got his freaking mentality is like that of a five-year-old. Yes, exactly. And that was my thing is like he he doesn't even understand it. He the legal perspective of it all. He is not going to, like most kids, be able to really comprehend what's going on. I mean, in this case, yeah, he's a teenager, but fuck. If he's I'm not, being, he's not like I'm an being, average teenager. Like he's not an average. I'm being questioned for the murder of children. Like for my freaking blood pressure kids. is going to be off the charts. Like I'm going to be yeah, panicking just for being questioned. And that's like, what drives me nuts. I'm, I mean, I know when this all took place, the polygraph was like a big thing. Now you have like 
now you have DNA. They didn't have, (laughs) they didn't have that much like DNA testing then. Exactly. I was going to say you have DNA testing. I mean, people have been able to find, you know, the suspect and the murderers of several cases just from like things like ancestry.com and stuff like that. Right. But you didn't like with the golden state killer and all that. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have things like that back then. Now, like they had polygraph tests. So they're reading these polygraph tests and they're like, Oh, he's lying. He's lying. It's been proven time and time again that those are not accurate. He's probably freaking out saying these guys are just going to pin this on me anyways. So I'm just nervous. Right. It's been proven time, time again, that those are not accurate. If no, you're nervous, not. it's going to throw it off. Freaking actual like psychopath, like serial killers can look like Passive. they're being truthful. Yes. Because they can know how to like slow down their heart rate, like just calm well, down. And- not just that. Like if you know, here, here's my perspective on this stuff too. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but when, if you're, you're wrong, polygraph- I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. Um, if you're given a polygraph test nine times out of the 10, the one that is guilty, the one that shows no remorse, the one that has no feelings or empathy or anything on, on anything that they have done is not going to be nervous. Right. Cause so they, they don't care. Test, They're not gonna be nervous. Cause they don't care. This polygraph test means shit to people like it, that. Exactly. So now you've got this kid that's sitting in this room being hounded by these detectives and these police officers and I know they're doing their job, but they're not doing their job. That's the the whole point of this case. And that's why it's so infuriating is because they weren't doing their job the way that they should have been doing. No, their job. They, they were, were not just trying to find somebody dependent on. Exactly. They had all this pressure to solve this case. And they were just like, never happened in their town. They were like, these now people are weird. Big, let's let this huge case. Yep. Yeah. So um, Jesse later said that Durham told him that the polygraph machine could read people's minds and it could tell him if their minds were different from what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And it, to- it told, he said that it told him that his mind was saying different than what he was telling him. And Jesse was like, I don't know what was going on. I was confused. How could my brain be telling me, be telling him that I'm sitting here lying? Like, he was, like, literally, like, I don't understand. Because he doesn't freaking comprehend that shit. So, he says that they then kept asking him the same questions over and over. Um, He just told him the stuff that he'd heard from his friend. And he kept saying, he kept telling them that he wanted to go home. And they kept telling him he could go home in a minute. But then they kept asking him questions. Like, what the hell? They um, then started asking him how he knew so much about it if he wasn't involved and he was like I just knew of it from hearing it from my friend then according to Jesse because remember most of this wasn't recorded instead of just asking him what he knows about the murders they started telling him they know he had something to do with the murders because people have told them that like people were like hey Jesse Miss Kelly he he was in on this like and so then he was like, yeah, the, the cops were like, yeah, people told me that you did this. So you need to start telling me what you did. Um, they then it started. It reminds me of the um, Stephen Avery case so much. Yeah. Um, they then started yelling at him and telling him that they know he was involved. Jesse says he kept telling them that he wanted to go home. And they kept yelling and asking him the same questions over and over and saying they knew he had something to do with it. 
So then he says that he just started going along with them. Like he just started repeating what they were telling him. And in part of the like quote confession that's recorded, you literally hear this. Like they're saying something and he's literally just repeating it back to them. Um, there's so many times that you hear them not even asking a question, but like leading him to the answers they want. Like at one point they ask him, what was they tied up with? Which like great grammar, by the way. And Jesse said, a rope. What was they tied up with? What was they tied up with? And Jesse said, a rope. And Gary Gitchell said, God damn it, Jesse, don't mess with me. No, they was tied up with shoestrings. Like, seriously? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I'm going to give you the answer and I need you to say it back to me. And that's on, literally the record button. <laughs> yeah, like literally, they he was literally just repeating back what they said because he eventually was like, if. I said what they wanted me to, they were nice to me. And if I didn't, then they were mean to me. So I found some little like number factoids for you about his confession. So during these confessions, they asked Jesse 340 questions in total. Okay. Mm -hmm. That we know of, like, who knows? That you know of. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So of these, Jesse averaged three words per answer. Um, 211 of these were yes or no questions. And out of those, there were eight questions that no was the only possible correct answer. And Jesse answered yes to all eight of those. (laughs) Um, there were 25 multiple choice questions. They gave him multiple choice questions for a murder investigation. Like what? Um, (laughs) I'm going to need you to fill these circles out in pencil only. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) There were 75 requests for details and 14 times that he was asked to repeat the details that he had already been that had already been stated so like they're like trying to drill it into his head well yeah exactly because they need somebody dependent on right um kid is like not he's literally he'd been there for hours and he just wanted to go home but he also like his mentality is he's literally like a five-year-old then but he's like a (laughs) five-year-old right um, 12 of the questions were just like open-ended questions and the remainder of them were statements that straight up elicited answers like when they asked him about what weapons were used on the boys. So Jesse himself only said fists and hands. Like that's all he said. Like he said that they were hitting them and they were strangling them even though like none of the boys were strangled at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but police suggested to him that they use sticks, knives, belts, and they even suggested the drownings of two boys. So I don't know if I mentioned that the actual like cause of deaths for the boys when it's, once it was determined, but it was determined that Chris Byers had died from blood loss and drowning was listed for the other two boys for Michael and Stevie. So the cops even like suggested that they were drowned. They suggested all these weapons. He was just like hands, but yeah, he clearly knows what happened. Um, let's see where am I I keep losing my pace place because I keep getting so mad <laughs> I know it just it does it makes me mad even hearing like I love this case because it is such a good case but at the same time it makes me so freaking mad every time because we all know I mean it is an absolute 100% these kids did not do it right they which, means, which means which means 100% somebody else did it and you're not even looking for them. No, and they got away with it. They literally got away with it. Like there's these no justice boys. for these there's poor no little boys that were murdered. Poor little boys. Right. 
So, um, you can say that he was probably correct a little bit when he said fist, just because they were covered in all these bruises, like probably there was hitting involved, but like that's stretching guys. Come on. Um, but to that also, let me mention the fact that during the 12 hours that he was questioned before the like confession occurred, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. I'm going to just keep doing that when I say confession, (laughs) um, before the confession occurred, he was shown an autopsy photo of one of the boys, which is bullshit. The detective showed a 17-year-old kid with an IQ of 72 an autopsy photo of a brutally murdered 8-year-old child during a 12-hour questioning without any legal representation or parents present. Does that seem like good policing? Like, is that no. allowed? Like, what the fuck? No, no it doesn't. It's normal again, questioning tactics, right? where they live, too. I like, know. And what drives me nuts, and I'm not, like, downing. So if there is any fellow arkansas people that listen to our podcast um no i live, I live right by here like so close i'm not gonna tell you where i live but super no. close to here no no offense but like west memphis is a shithole <laughs> dude i'm sorry <laughs> i'm not i'm not trying to be mean i hate that place <laughs> i mean i've got i've got bad blood towards that place but for other reasons but also this that's yeah. exactly why <laughs> yeah we have our own like personal we got our own little personal vendettas about west memphis but <laughs> we have this just adds to it <laughs> but this just makes it that much worse <laughs> it really does like the and i'll tell you and like i we won't get into it our personal side but like it literally has to do with the legal side of it it really does it uh and that's what makes me so <laughs> mad about this case too because they do it no matter what they just is. do it over and over and they get away with it literally do not care and nothing happens like they can just nothing get away with it happens they get away with it i personally it just makes me so mad i cannot wait until i finish school <laughs> that's all i have to say <laughs> okay I cannot wait. Well, back to the case because <laughs> okay um <laughs> They also, during this time, during the 12-hour questioning, like when they weren't recording, they played him a tape recording of a child's voice, like creepily whispering, nobody knows what happened to me. What the fuck? I, I read that wrong, by the way. It's not to me. It's but me. <laughs> nobody oh. nobody knows like, what <laughs> Nobody knows what happened but me. <laughs> After I read that, I was like, shit, that's not the words. <laughs> I was literally like, what the fuck are they playing? <laughs> it's nobody knows what happened but me, but it's like this creepy little child's like disembodied voice. God damn it, David's back. <laughs> right. <laughs> damn it, dear David. No. Um many times they played I this for him. To leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> they played this for him. And it had been taken from an interview that they had done with Aaron Hutchinson, Aaron Hutchison a few days before. And he was like telling them about the men of the woods and their faces being painted and all that stuff. But they didn't tell Jesse whose voice it was. They're just like, listen to this. (laughs) And he's like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) They're just like, listen to this creepy voice. It's cool. Um, So now um, he's telling police that he, let's see, where am I at? (laughs) I keep losing it. I keep, I'm so, I'm so, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> um 
Oh, Jesus. Okay. Aaron Hutchison. A few days ago, they interviewed him. Now he's telling police, you know, I said before that his story was going to keep changing. So yeah. now he's telling police that he and the victims um, saw these creepy men all the time in the woods and that they would like go into the woods just to spy on them. That was what he's saying before. Now he's saying that um, he's sure that that's why the boys were going to the woods to spy on those guys and those guys like had to have killed them like it was these guys it was these crazy satan worshiper guys okay so after jesse is questioned and spoiler alert arrested because if you don't know that sorry that's gonna happen um (laughs) aaron's story changed yet again to instead of the last time that he saw the boys being when his mom asked him after like when they asked his mom if he could go with them to the robin hood after school and she was like no well now he's like she said no but i rode my bike there anyways without her knowing and i was with them when they got killed like i saw them got killed so after jesse is questioned and gets arrested then aaron's like oh no i saw them and Jesse had called me the night before and he'd asked me to bring my friends there the next day and Jesse and Damien and Jason they like caught they like saw this spying on them and they killed them like what that made no sense right like his story changes so much but he's a freaking eight-year-old kid like clearly his mom is just bringing him into all this and like hey you need to say this to the police yes exactly Yes, like it's so freaking sad. So he literally told the cops it was da- it was Jesse and Damien and Jason and we like were all spying on them and they saw them and they caught them and Jesse caught me and tied me up too, but I got away because I kicked Jesse and so then Jesse ran away because I kicked him. So that's how I got away. No. <laughs> like what? I'm sorry. If these were murderers and they were like they killing these you. three boys, they wouldn't just let you get away. Like that's not how that works no they and they damn sure wouldn't run away from me <laughs> like what i feel really bad for him because like like i said he's just an eight-year-old little boy getting pulled into you, all of this how would you how do you feel knowing like you're an eight-year-old little boy you're saying all this stuff and then the older you get how would you feel about that like living with you right also like his friends just got murdered he's getting pulled all into this his mom was clearly feeding him these stories to tell the cops like it's really sad kind of mother does that too it's so sad and you can list like they have like all these interviews online where you can listen to him and he, when you listen to him he's clearly nervous he says um like a hundred times he changes the story a lot like with them leading him to answers just like they do with jesse yeah because mentally they're not that far apart like at all um he gets like certain details wrong that don't match up like he told them he saw them tie the boys up and him up with rope that they had just found like laying around instead of like the shoelaces that we all know they were tied up with um he said they all had knife like all all of them had knives and they stabbed the boys in the neck repeatedly like that didn't happen he um also said that they had cut michael's privates off when he like yeah i remember that and it had actually been chris that had been like had those kind of injuries um so this this poor kid's clearly relaying stuff that he's been told and details are just getting mixed up also in like news reports like they were printed 
they messed up and they said it was Michael that had those injuries and not Christopher. So like literally they're just like getting the stuff from the news and saying it to the cops and the cops were like, good enough for me. Like it wasn't even accurate information. No. Um, the freaking investigators, this was really pissing me off when I was listening to these interviews. They kept asking this poor little kid if they touched him anywhere. Like when he's talking to them, like he's trying to talk- really fucked up to ask. Not to mention like that right there is enough to like fuck a kid up. Yes, like he is eight years old and he's like clearly just like being told what to say about this. His kids just got killed. Like his friends just got killed. This is all terrible for him. He doesn't even know what's going on. And the freaking investigators are like, but did they touch you anywhere? Like what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, finally, after them asking him repeatedly, repeatedly, this is what he said. He said, quote, they abused me of killing me like that makes no sense he clearly doesn't know what these words mean like stop so when he said that they're like okay but besides that did they touch you anywhere like what (laughs) they're like do you not want to say it because your mom is here they kept asking him and finally finally after them asking him over and over he was like they touched me on my private spot and they're like okay how did they touch you because they keep pressing for these details that clearly didn't happen and he's just like, they just touched it. Like, that was the end of it. That's, it's like freaking infuriating. Like, leave him alone and, and do a real freaking investigation. I'm going to tell you right now that if any kid was actually touched inappropriately, they're going to tell you what happened. Right. I mean, they may not openly tell, not everybody does, but I'm saying if they're in this situation where they're being questioned and they ask you, they're going to tell you. Like, it's, or they're gonna be make more sense about it and know like it was inappropriate if it's a freak I feel this like kid is over here like I don't even know what's what he's talking about like is that like am oh, I supposed to am I supposed to say that they touched me like what am I supposed to do right here what does that even mean Did right he touch me? like that's terrible like do a freaking real investigation and look for the actual murderers you and now when he's older he's gonna understand oh that's what that meant that's uh okay so back, I'm going back to Jesse now. I'm done with that rant. <laughs> okay. Excuse just it's so infuriating. Excuse me while I uh, lean up to get my <laughs> bougie drink. <laughs> your bougie drink. Your non-alcoholic. My non-alcoholic. Your juice. Your sparkling Ju- juice. My ju- your juice. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, just so y'all know, that's how my kid said juice when he was like two. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so like, back to Jesse. They like <laughs> They're that? like, why are they saying juice like that? <laughs> okay, so back to Jesse. They're they're like coming in hot at him. He's asking to go home. They're ignoring him. Finally, he realizes if I just repeat what they want me to, they're like calming down and not getting so mad. So I'm just going to do that. Which is so sad. So sad. So somehow through all this, they get to a story that Jason called Jesse that morning wanting Jesse to go with them to West Memphis, them being Jesse and Damien, mm-hmm. being Jason and Damien, I mean. So even though Jesse never really hung out with the two of them and also Jesse had spent the night at a friend's house that didn't even have a phone at their house that night. So there was no way for him to have got this call, period. Like, first of all, how did Jason know to call him there? when they never hang out and two how did he call him there because there was no phone at that house also 
This is back in the time where it was landlines. Exactly. It's 1993. People did not have cell phones. It was landline or nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but sure, yeah. He called him. So <laughs> now they're getting this confession that they want. So they, they're like, okay, let's record this shit. And oh, it's, okay. <laughs> 12 hours later, hey, where's the camera? <laughs> they're like, push that button. It's just audio. It's not even fucking camera. <laughs> so like, okay, hit record. So it's, it's so fucking infuriating to listen to because they're leading him through the entire thing. So at points, like he doesn't even seem to know what they want him to say next. And so they just lead him straight to it. Like one time they asked him how he and Jason and Damien got there. And Jesse says, we walked. And then, um, and then when he struggles with what he's supposed to say after that, Detective Ridge says, where did you go? So, so, the, so then he's like, oh yeah, we went here. Like they literally lead him through the entire story the entire time. Um, Jesse never says where they went. They literally just like told him and he repeated it back. Like he never said, we went here. They were like, oh, so you went here? And he, they're like, oh, you went to this place. And he's like, that place. Like he just repeated what they said. Mm -hmm. There's like clear instruction, not questions in their voices and jesse's voice sounds like he's just trying to give them the correct answer like he's like being tested like at one point he says the blue beacon truck wash and ridge is like behind the blue beacon and jesse's like yeah right back behind it he's like yeah that's what i meant like <laughs> um there was also just like with aaron there was a lot of details that didn't match up so there's like so many discrepancies with the times in this whole entire conversation like at first he's describing everything is happening around 9 a.m but obviously that wasn't possible because all three of the victims were at school then like they went to school and came home from school so they asked him about time like several more times until they finally get to the time they want so they like led him into the time that they wanted so it goes from the police saying okay you got the call at 9 a.m he's like first they're like what time did y'all get there and he's like 9 a.m and they're like okay so you got the call at 9 a.m but what time were you actually in the woods? Like, that's not what he said. He said 9 a.m. Oh, mm -hmm. And then he says, uh, about noon. And literally one of the investigators, like, grunts and then goes, okay, was it after school had let out? Like, that's not what he said. When did school let out at noon? So when they said that, Jesse's like, I didn't go to school. And they're like, no, not you, these little boys. And Jesse says, no, no, they skipped school. They had all gone to school that day. Like, they were all marked present by their teachers. Like, they were all at school. So, the investigators knew that. And they just completely ignored that he said that. They, like, went right past it. And so, like, they just, like, went back to it later. But they were like, okay, we'll, we'll fix that later. So, Jesse went on to explain that the boys were, like, going somewhere. And they were on their bikes. Like, he was like, I don't know. They might have been riding their bikes to school or whatever. He was like. And once he says bikes, Ridge interrupts him and is like, okay, they were on their bikes. Where were the bikes at? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? Um, also, it was confirmed that Jason was in school that day. So that doesn't line up either. Like, this whole thing, he's like, Jason and Damien called me at nine and they wanted me to go here and out with them. Jason was marked present at school. Like, he was at school all that day. But yeah, this is a real confession, guys keep going um so there's several times that when they keep asking him over and over what happens next they don't like the answer that he gives so they ask him again 
and then he changes the answer and then when they finally get the answer that they want then they'll like move on to the next question like in the beginning of all this the story is just that damien and jason are doing all these terrible things to the boys and he's just like there and he sees it he says damien and jason attack the boys they start beating them and then he says michael moore starts running away so he stops him and then when he like he stops him and he brings him back to them and then he left okay so seven different times mm-hmm. during this whole thing he says that he left every time that he says that they completely ignore him and they're like okay but then what did, what happened next did this happen next and he's like yeah that happens and then i left and they're like no but after that did this happen and he's like well yeah that happened but i left like he couldn't have left because that wouldn't work for their story so they were just ignoring it when he said that like he said he fucking left like stop i know they first just, of all none of this happened second of all he keeps like oh i don't know i left they're like oh no but then but then you saw this didn't you because they fucking bullied him into doing all this again it reminds me so much of the stephen avery case which i'm not talking stephen avery per se i'm talking stephen avery's nephew yeah like he literally had the he had like a very low iq right and couldn't even comprehend doing what he was framed for either so again it's just it's sickening because it's it just continues to happen in those areas right (laughs) because there's nothing to stop it like nobody's checking in on these little areas um no so they try to get him to go into details about stuff which clearly is not going to happen because there's no details to tell like they're trying to get him to go details he keeps talking about damien and jason hitting the boys and then at one point he says he they, they're, they're hitting them and then they start screwing them and stuff like that's how he worded it now there was no evidence from the medical examiner that these boys were raped like at all there was there was anal dilation on two of the boys but it was determined that that was most likely from being in the water because there was like yeah. no there was no like tearing in that area on yeah. any of the boys like and that would have absolutely been present if they were like struggling and violently raped. Like none of that happened. So he says this and the investigators like push him farther into giving more details about the quote, screwing them and stuff. They were like, like Ridge literally said, okay, how were they screwing them when you saw them? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, at one point during this, they literally asked Jesse, do you know what a penis is? So this is when they're trying to get him to go into detail about them mutilating Chris Byers. Yes. And they asked him where Jason cut Chris and Jesse literally, he like asked, he didn't even answer. He asked at the bottom, like as a question is how he said it. Like you could hear it because he's not sure what they want him to say. (laughs) Detective Ridge later testifies that he was unaware on this date that Jesse had a mental handicap so which is bullshit (laughs) if this was actually the case why would you ask a 17 year old boy if he knows what a penis is like i would think the only reason that you would ask that would be if it's obvious that you're talking to someone that's functioning at a much lower level of it of intelligence you know like that's the only reason you'd ask that so to this question jesse's like yeah that's where he was cut like that's that was his answer to that do you know what a penis is yeah that's where he was cut and Glitchell says, which boy was that? And Jesse points to a picture of Michael Moore. 
which it was not Michael Moore, it was Chris Byers. So Glitchell says, you're talking about the Byers boy? And he's like, yeah. That's, Cause that's what you want me to be talking about clearly. Uh, then they're like, are you sure that's the one that was cut? And he's like, yeah, that's the one I saw him cutting. And then they again ask him if he knows what a penis is. <laughs> like, what is happening? Why is this even like, why is this happening? Why is this a thing? He should have stopped a long ass time ago when he wasn't making sense. Right. But they if just he, kept on pushing him because they were like, oh, this boy dumb dumb. So he's he's dumb dumb. So we can just do whatever we want. Well, I'm just going to, and I'm not trying to be mean about it or anything. Right. But I, no. But at the time he was just like. They knew. Okay. Like clearly they knew if you don't know that he's mentally challenged why would you be asking him that repeatedly like exactly and i'm not know. calling again i'm not calling mentally challenged people dumb no that's just how these like sons of bitches were thinking because they're pieces yes, of shit that's exactly what i meant when i was saying that so let me right. like fix how i was saying that um yeah these cops were like oh this boy's dumb so i'm just gonna like make him say this stuff because shit if i make him say it on like recording right then we got him <laughs> right we got him job done let's go home like no. Touché, let me just how do you how do you sleep at night you sons of bitches anyways mm. when it came to talking about the boys being tied up they repeatedly asked him how they were tied and he kept like mentioning their hands being tied up but not their feet so at one point like they're clearly trying to get him to say their feet were tied up so at one point ridge is like if their hands are tied up why didn't they run away yeah so jesse didn't get what they were saying and he's like um they, they were just beat up so bad they couldn't hardly move and so ridge tries again and he's like you said their hands are tied up or tied down or whatever were their hands tied in a fashion that they couldn't have run you tell me and so like obviously he was like hoping that it would click with jesse and jesse be like oh so say they they were tied so they couldn't run but it didn't click <laughs> jesse was just like they could run <laughs> like he said they could <laughs> oh, God. right after this they're like more mixed up with times um there's several times where they're asking him which side of the creek that he's on and he gets that wrong several times and they literally change what he's like they change what he says they're like let me correct that they said that let me correct that when he said something like you can't correct someone's recollection like what <laughs> <laughs> let me correct what you said you're right. wrong because <laughs> he was like i was on this side and they're like oh the west side or the east side and he was like uh clearly confused by that they're like okay so let me let me correct that you're on this hey, side. Me, girl i'm confused about that i don't do west and east <laughs> right i don't know do you mean by taco bell or by mcdonald's like what do you mean <laughs> like what exactly uh okay so <laughs> like don't even start <laughs> They have this problem with the times that he's giving. So first he says 9 a.m., which obviously doesn't work for them because the boys didn't go missing until like after six that night. So then they got him to noon and that still doesn't work. So, you, uh, you know, I kept saying that he was saying that he left. He was like, oh, I left. Well, mm -hmm. now they've decided that after he left, okay, yeah, sure you left. And then you got a phone call from Jason and Damien asked him why you left. So, okay, he didn't say that, but sure. So originally when they bring this up, they're like, well, so what time did they call you after you left? And he, he was like, um, 9 p.m. <laughs> okay. So his story is now that he left the scene at like noon and he went home and they called him at like 9 p.m. 
he says this and then they're like okay so you leave and you go home and when did you receive this call from them and before he could even answer they're like was it like 30 minutes or an hour was it an hour after you got home so clearly they're just giving him two choices to pick from so he chooses and he says an hour so now they've gone down from 9 p.m to 1 um then they decide that Gitchell needs to like clear some things up and so he they like turn the recorder off and he like questions Jesse alone so that's cool that's not recorded who knows what happened there <laughs> um suddenly the tape recorder like switches back on and when it comes back on Gitchell says when you got with the boys and with Jason and Damien when you three were in the woods and then the little boys come up about what time was it when the boys came up to the woods and without hesitating Jesse says I would say it was about five or six which is not even close to anything he'd said before at all so when when he says that Gitchell pauses for a good like few seconds and then he's like um you told me earlier it was about seven or eight so which time was it and Jesse was like oh oh it was seven or eight <laughs> like what <laughs> but was it right Gitchell's like you sure and Jesse was like um it was starting to get dark and Gitchell's like okay well that clears it up he's like he asked him at one point do you have a watch and he's like oh my watch is at home he's like okay so you didn't know what time it was so it was about to get dark so that's how, that's where we're gonna go from here <laughs> like what <laughs> so we go from 9 a.m to it was getting dark come on guys like what the f Ugh. so they still have like details that he's not getting right for them so they like ask him again what the boys are tied up with and he's like rope and they're like no it's shoelaces <laughs> and then at one point um he said that chris byers was killed by being choked so first he said it was done with someone's hands and then he says it was done with a stick after police had suggested a stick had been used at some point so the medical examiner said there were no signs of choking at all and if it was with a stick that would have caused an obvious like linear damage and there was like none of that on him at all like at all so when jesse is asked about all this later he says that he gave them an answer that he didn't like and they screamed at him until he got it right um but when he gave an answer that they did like they were nice to him so that's why he was like giving these answers um he said it was obvious to him that they were trying really hard to give him clues about what he was what he was supposed to say so he was trying really hard to get these clues right but sometimes it was just really hard for him to figure out what they wanted him to say like that's so freaking sad it's, by the way <laughs> i was about um, to say it's like um it's literally like telling a kid i need you to say this and if you don't it literally is and also take this away from you exactly well remember he thought at the end of all this his dad was going to get thirty five thousand dollars. like his dad was going to be able to get him a new truck because he was helping them he said quote i figured they knew i was lying from the get-go because the police they knew me they knew me for a long time they knew i wasn't the type of person to go killing little kids I figured they knew I was lying because they was lying too. Like what the, that's so sad. It's so more than sad. It's yes. Fucking, it's fucked up. Heartbreaking. 
So they put him in a holding cell without telling him that he was now implicated by his own words for the murder of three eight-year-old children because he had said that he had stopped Michael Moore when he tried to run away. Um, that made him like an accessory to the crime. Nobody told him that. He said that he thought he was going to go home and he was just waiting for his dad to come pick him up. He, he said, quote, I figured they knew I needed a ride home, but my dad never did show up. Like, how fucking sad is that? That is so fucking sad. Right? So, <clears throat> Richard Offshe, who is an ex- expert in police interrogation and false confessions, and, like, later testified in the trials for defense, he said, after all of this, he said, this is a quote from him, this is a classic example of how police can produce a false confession. First, they threaten Jesse. Then they tell him they know things that they know he knows. They use a polygraph. They tell him he flunked the polygraph when he didn't. They use that to convince him that his situation is hopeless. They upset him enormously by showing him these horrible photographs of these dead children. And they give him the option of being with the bad guys with the consequences or joining the police. And at this point, all he wants to do is get out from under the pressure. So now all he has to do is agree with what they're saying. And that's how they set it up. So that's like coming from an expert on all of this. So that's cool that that happens super commonly, right? Yeah, right. Cool, cool, cool. That's great. Cool, cool, cool. Good to say, know. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Good to know. So now they have Jesse. They're like, he gave us what we needed, even though like <laughs> none of that makes any sense. Um, they're like, let's go get these other two. Like, did he though? Did he give you what you needed? <laughs> so. While Jesse's waiting for his dad to come pick him up, Deputy Prosecutor John Fogelman, that's how I feel about him, he goes to Judge Rainey, and he's like, dude, we really need to go search the houses of Damien, Jason, Jesse, and Dominie, which was Damien's girlfriend at the time. And Judge Rainey's like, okay, why though? And Fogelman's like, well, they're all like close friends and members of a close-knit cult group. So Randy was like, okay, good enough for me. And he like signs these search warrants (laughs) and he signs warrants authorizing the arrests of Damien and Jesse. Like, okay. So that night, um, Jason and not Jesse, I said, did I say Jesse? You said Jason. Okay. So that night, Jason and Damien are at Damien's house. So usually Jason had to stay at home on weeknights to watch his younger brothers because his mom worked like late during the week. But she had actually arranged for someone else to come watch them because that day had been the last day of school and he had passed all of his exams and he'd like passed 10th grade. So as a way for him to thank him and like congratulate him for all like the hard work he did at school and like helping around at the house, she was like, I'll find someone else to watch them so you can go hang out with your friends tonight. So he's at Damien's house. Also Damien's parents, they had planned a night out for themselves going to a new casino that had just opened up in Tunica, Mississippi. (laughs) So Mississippi, I say that like everybody knows exactly where all these areas are because I live close to it, but people don't all know. So that's, that's not far from them. (laughs) Um, So Damien's parents, they had like rented a TV and a VCR because that's what year it was that you rent TVs and VCRs if you're poor. Um, So they had rented this for Damien and his sister, Michelle, to watch while they were gone. So Jason and Dominique had come over and they were all just like together watching a movie when police show up. 
so they arrested Damien and Jason and Jason's like asking what like what they're arresting them for and they're like for murder and he's like um no you've got the wrong people so they're arrested and charged with three counts each of capital murder Jason keeps trying to tell them that he was like he's like I'm at school I was at school that day you've got the wrong people like this was not us um they're um they're like okay well if you mean to tell me that if we go to your school and ask for records they'll show that you were there and he's like yeah go go get them but like they didn't they're like whatever like no or else they were or else they did and they're like well shit hide these like oh yeah exactly (laughs) right either way either way it was not what they were supposed to do so remember i said jason's mom was at work that night that they were arrested well she was never contacted like that night she was not contacted that they was arrested um he was not offered an attorney there's no record of them questioning him at all like they literally have nothing tying jason to this at all other than that he, he is friends with damien and that jesse jesse said that they did it in this weird fucking confession that they want to call confession like that's all they got so um that's normal right <laughs> police always arrest police always arrest all the murder suspects friends that's how that works um so he's straight up labeled as guilty by association and that's all they need throughout this whole trial apparently it's super ugh. so his mother later he like the next day she asked detective ridge she's like how could he how could jason's arrest be based on nothing other than the statement that jesse gave with all these discrepancies like there's so many different stories that he gave i don't see how anyone could believe it and to that ridge says he's like it's like this we have a story that's very very believable it's so close to perfect that we have to believe it so we're going to believe it until we can break that story i'm i'm sorry what story is that (laughs) I'm going to need you to back that up again. Like, can you explain that to me? Because I don't think I've heard that story yet. Once. I don't, I haven't heard it, nor do I want to hear it. That sounds like a bullfaced <laughs> lie to me. <laughs> like, what the, uh, okay. So the next morning, Gary Gitchell calls this huge press conference. And he's like telling them we have suspects in custody, like all this stuff or whatever. It's like this huge case because it's been, it's been over a month since the murders and everybody's like still freaking out that this murder is on the loose or whatever so he like holds this big co- conference he's like we, we got suspects in, in custody he wouldn't give the press any real answers whenever they asked a question probably because he didn't fucking have any so the only answer he really gives is when a reporter asks him on a scale of one to ten how solid do you feel your case is and this motherfucker smiles real, real big. And he says, 11. 11? What the, like. That was, time out. 11? 11. On a scale of 1 to 10, his case is an 11. He's solid. He's got so much fucking evidence on these people. But he had zero. You have not one single solid piece of fucking evidence on them. Nothing. My, 11. <laughs> 11. That's what he said. Like, that's, that's the only thing. Me. That's like saying, what are those crazy math? <laughs> like, you've got 30 apples <laughs> and 20 bananas. And he's like, fucking 11. <laughs> <laughs> 20 apples and 30 bananas. And I'm going to need um, 
how many does it take to ride the train to turn the sky green? What the fuck? Like, <laughs> 11 motherfucking apples? Is that what we're asking? Apples? Like, like, you're just random. It's like saying you can taste the color green. Like, this doesn't make sense. He has no fucking evidence. You don't answer anything at all because you have no answers. But to that, you say fucking 11. Sure. 11. I can't. Honestly, that sounds like a, <laughs> if Michael's listening to this. Oh God! <laughs> it sounds like a Michael answer. On a scale of one to ten, how confident? How confident are you? Eleven. <laughs> oh, he's always eleven confident on a scale of one to ten. <laughs> but they should not have been because they had fucking nothing. That's only like eleven. <laughs> this is what they had. They had a clearly led false confession from a mentally challenged kid that should not have been admissible in any court. Like that's what they had. <laughs> like what? That's an eleven. Okay. So everyone like claps and cheers when he says this. And he's like, yup, I'm awesome. Yup. So Gitchell later himself says that he shouldn't have said that. (laughs) (laughs) But he doesn't say that because he doesn't, he said, he didn't think that his case wasn't solid. He still says that he thinks it was solid. He says that he shouldn't have said that because it just, it just put so much pressure on them to make sure that they got these boys convicted of these murders yeah like, shut up <laughs> what I mean, like you just need to shut your fucking mouth <laughs> shut your mouth so now all this is going on during all this time the newspapers are like going to town on the story headlines are starting to say things like teen describes cult torture of boys culture cult torture of boys and it also says like defendant miss kelly tells police of sex mutilation like so where are they getting these stories well Someone leaked out Jesse's confession to the press. Of course they did. Of course they did. So newspapers are like printing bits and pieces of this confession. And if you don't see the full confession for yourself, then that's looking pretty good for the West Memphis police. Like if you're just seeing little bits and pieces of it, it's looking good for them. Mm-hmm. So they're like, everybody, everybody's like, well, we've got this confession. It clearly gives a ton of info. Like, these guys did it surely they have a lot more evidence that links them to this crime if Gitchell himself is saying they have an 11 case like so 11 11 except that they don't have an 11 case <laughs> so um judge Rainey issues an order sealing all the records from the public so nothing else can get leaked out because there's nothing else anyways but damage has been done the public's like freaking out they're like there's these satan worshipers Media is going crazy. They're like reporting all kinds of ridiculous things that feed into this because the media itself is the devil, in my opinion. That's what they do. <laughs> um, the West Memphis paper reported that Damien wore the number 666, a sign of the devil, in his boots. And um, it quoted an unnamed girl who claimed that she had seen Damien drink Jason and Dominique's blood. Like it didn't even get Dominique's name right. It's a Dominique, but okay. Um, <laughs> it also quoted like, another it's like it's like stepbrothers pa- how do you pam pan p-a-n p-a-n <laughs> right like that's what it was it quoted another woman that lived in the lakeshore area and she said she had noticed that in the last year there were some dogs that had turned up missing and also, 
she saw that that Eccles boy was always wearing black. <laughs> like, that's all it said. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I always wear black, too. <laughs> the newspaper's literally just quoting random people gossiping about teenagers who look different. Like, that's <laughs> what it was. Like, what? And everybody was taking it seriously because everybody was like, Satan, no. Like, what? No. No, Satan. So, <laughs> okay. So, the boys have a hearing on June 7th. And a state judge appointed a pair of lawyers for each of them because none of them had the money to hire a lawyer on their own. So Damien was appointed Val Price and Scott Davidson. Jason was appointed Paul Ford and George Robin Wadley. Wadley? Wadley? I don't know. And Jesse was appointed Dan Stidham and Greg Crow. So none of these lawyers had much experience when it came to representing clients charged with capital murder. They were all... Um, pretty young they were all like in their early 30s i think one of them was like 27 the rest of them were like 30 um originally dan stidham one of jesse's lawyers was reluctant to take the case mainly because he had an eight-year-old kid of his own at the time and he was like this is really too close to home or whatever but um he was like well, this kid confessed. It should be a pretty open and shut case. We can probably get like a plea bargain for his testimony against the other two. Bada bing, bada boom, we're done. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. But he hadn't, so, he didn't know much about the case though. Exactly. So, well, then he meets Jesse. Meanwhile, Jesse's thinking to himself that Dan and Greg, these two lawyers that he's given, are on the police's side and that they're just more like people trying to get him put in prison because he doesn't know any better than this. So he doesn't know that the lawyers are there to help him. So when he first meets Dan, Jesse again does this weird confession that doesn't make any sense. Like he doesn't really match up exactly to what he said before because he's just trying to remember what he was supposed to say before. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was going to say he was like literally told to say this stuff. Right. Also he didn't ever look at Dan the whole time. He just like stared at the floor the entire time he was talking. So Dan's like, okay, this doesn't seem right. Like what's going on. So he decides to have Jesse's polygraph re-examined by Dr. Warren Holmes, who was one of the foremost experts in polygraphs at the time. So Dr. Holmes concluded that the polygraph did not show that he was lying when he said he wasn't a member of a cult or that he wasn't involved in murders. So Dan's like, shit. Okay. He's, innocent now i have to get him to trust me and realize that i'm on his side so that we can prove that he's innocent so he goes back to the jail and he's like dude like you got to level with me were you there or not and jesse finally said he wasn't there and dan was like well then why did you tell me that other stuff before and jesse was like well i didn't want to give the wrong answer and then die in the electric chair (laughs) right (laughs) so dan said that he then explained to jesse like hey like we're on your side like Jesse, Dan realized that Jesse didn't even know what a lawyer was. He thought that Dan and Greg were like detectives. He thought they were just more detectives coming to talk to him. So like he explained everything to him. Um, During one visit with Dan, not long after this, Jesse asked him who Satin was. And Dan was like, what? So Jesse hands him this pamphlet that a preacher gave him that Jesse could barely read because he can't fucking read. (laughs) Um, And he kept he was reading Satan as Satin. Like the fabric. So. 
like Dan, it, it was uh, it was I a mean, pamphlet it's an honest mistake <laughs> right so dan's going over this pamphlet with jesse and he realizes that jesse had heard of the devil but that he had never heard that he was called satan like he didn't even know that the devil and satan was the same thing so dan later said this moment was one of the most ironic moments of the entire ordeal because there he was sitting in a jail cell with a confessed satanic killer who was asking him who satin was like <sighs> okay I mean, can i start calling him that <laughs> yes like he's he will forever be known as satin now um like, now anytime that i hear satan i'm gonna think of like this red shiny fabric laying on it's so shiny <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So after discussions among the attorneys, it was decided that private investigator Ron Lax would work with Val Price and Scott Davidson. So those were the lawyers representing Damien. So he was like this well-known investigator. He was like sought out by defense lawyers that needed help on cases with clients that were charged with capital murder. Mm -hmm. um, he was like super organized and methodical and he was also convinced from past experiences that bad police work often resulted in charges against innocent people. So in the beginning, Lax assumed that all three of these defendants were guilty. He was like, okay, I'll meet with Damien and interview him and see where we stand. So like they said, this interview, um, but that didn't exactly work out the way he planned because um, on June 8th, when they're supposed to interview four days after Damien's arrest, Damien overdosed on Elevil, which was his depression medication. So his mom had brought his medicine and left it with the jailers to give him. And they dispensed him three pills a day for four days. Four days? Yeah, four days. And he had saved up 12 pills without them even knowing it. So he swallowed all of them and then had to be rushed to the hospital to get his stomach pumped. Well, I mean, he's literally being tried for murder right <laughs> what <would you> do? <laughs> right so he gets better he's still he's in jail tried for murder on a case that he didn't do at all and he knows he's gonna go to prison for it because he knows what they're trying to do right and his mental state is not well to begin with like so he's already been diagnosed with depression his home life's not great He's like growing up in, in poverty he's been harassed by the past few years by police and his probation officer and on top of all of that he's like locked up for a crime that he didn't do and his girlfriend is due to deliver his baby that fall so he's got like a lot going on there <laughs> um after he gets out of the hospital lax is finally able to meet up with him like several times and then he becomes convinced that like he's like oh shit these boys are innocent like they didn't do it so the more he got into the case the more he realizes this the authorities are straight up like trying to frame him like it's an easy out for them like they're winning they find these people and these weirdos are off the streets even though they didn't do anything um so 
Damien also met with Lax's assistant, Glory Shuttles, several times. Like when Lax couldn't get there, he'd send an assistant and she'd go meet with him. And he really started to like trust both of them. And they're both really getting more and more concerned with him, more concerned about him because he's like only sleeping around two hours a night. He's like getting noticeably shaking. Every time they meet him, he's like super shaky. And he's starting to show full on signs of like paranoia. So at one point he wrote a letter to Shettles saying that he was sure the police were putting something in the food and that they were putting some kind of gas into the vents. So like that's the state Damien's in before the trial start, which is terrible. That is terrible. Um, Jason, his lawyers, Ford and Wadley start looking, Wadley, Wadley, I don't know. (laughs) They start looking into his background and they're like, what the actual fuck? So other than Jesse's confession, the state appeared to have nothing at all that tied him to this crime. So they're looking into him and they're like, okay, according to Jesse's confession, this kid is the most vicious of the attackers. Like according to that, his confession, Jason castrated Chris Byers, even though he pointed to Michael Moore when he said that, but whatever. Um, He's supposed to be this vicious murderer. And the only kind of criminal background that he has is possibly breaking glass on some old car windows and stealing a bag of M&Ms. Like that's it. There's no violent history whatsoever. He was a good student in school. Like he made good grades and he had certificates that he got in school for punctuality and attendance. Um, The police had taken some essays that he had written for English class not long before the murders. And they they were like optimistic. They're not violent or murdery or whatever. Um, one of them, he had to write about a classmate who had recently committed suicide and he'd written, I didn't know her very well, but I know how people who knew her feel because once my mother tried to commit suicide and I know how I felt when that happened, it was pretty devastating since I was the one who found her and called 911 and kept her alive, but I'm lucky my mother is alive and well and happy now. And so am I. So he wrote that a month before the murders occurred. So the Lord's like, what the actual hell? Like, how can anyone actually think this kid committed these crimes? Like, there's nothing at all. So the judge ruled that Jesse's trial would be first in January. And then that Damien and Jesse would just have a joint trial next month after that. Which I don't know, understand why that would be a thing. The reason they separated that them that way was they were going to have jesse's and then jesse's quote confession wasn't to be brought up in damon and jason's trial okay but, but still i don't know why they wouldn't separate damon and jason but whatever I, yeah that so really... right judge burnett said that he made this decision because combining their trials it was a matter of judicial econ- <laughs> judicial economy And he didn't think that a joint trial would jeopardize either one of their cases. He was like, it's fine. Like, it's not going to bother. Like, it won't affect them. Okay. So Mm -hmm. Jason's lawyers argued that it would absolutely jeopardize his case. Since, you know, the only thing they had against him was that he was Damien's friend. Like, that was it. Which is bullshit. Right. Which is bullshit. But also, let him have his own trial instead of putting him next to this person that that's the only thing they have against him 
No, but they're not going to let them have a Zoom trial because they already decided. They decided before the trial happened. They did. Yeah. So Judge, Bur- Judge Burnett's like, no, let's just do it like this. <laughs> He's like, it's fine. It's fine. So before the start of the trials, all the lawyers were getting super frustrated because the state was releasing their records to them super slowly, like so slowly. And when they did get them, they were like crazy unorganized. Like they weren't organized by time or place or like even by name. They were, they were just jumbled mess that they were getting. So like different reports on the same people would come over the course of months. So they get like a sheet of paper on, on this person and like months later get another sheet of paper on this person. Like it was no kind of organization at all. Um, they wouldn't have full records for months. Everything was out of sequence. There was no kind of order to it. So they would basically have to sit there and figure out the order of these records before they could even begin to like really look into them and figure out how they want to go about like setting up the whole case. Like they need these details to know what kinds of experts they need to call in and witnesses and all that stuff. But by the time it was fall, they still didn't have any records of the Vicki and Aaron Hutchison interviews and they were arrested on June 3rd. But by uh, fall, they didn't have those records. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, that, that right there is like, okay, well, we're just not going to have a trial now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so let's just get back down to this. <laughs> Looks like we're just going to have to let you go. <laughs> right. So between June and September, they still hadn't received anything at all that constituted evidence against the defendants besides Jesse's quote confession which he had retracted by that point at the way by the way um so how are you supposed to build a defense when you're giving nothing to even build a defense against like build a defense off of that what are you building a defense against <laughs> so they're like right they're literally trying to piece everything together with nothing at all <laughs> Um, I'm sure they were releasing the records a little at a time because they didn't have freaking anything to send them. Like, there was nothing. Police were literally still scrambling around trying to find evidence against them all during the months before the trial started. So, like, after they arrested them, they're, like, looking for all this evidence. So, the lawyers started gradually getting records from Fogelman showing that the West Memphis police, showing what the West Memphis police had done since they had been arrested on June 3rd like okay for example on july 1st nearly a month after they were arrested detective ridge decided he was going to return to the side where the bodies were found just like on a hunch (laughs) he's just going to go back and check it out and so he found two sticks that had gone unnoticed oh okay third you did huh (laughs) he just he just found two sticks (laughs) like what (laughs) you found those huh just out of nowhere Hmm. sticks weird so there's nothing that connected these sticks to the crime other than they were in the same woods and all (laughs) (laughs) like they're in the woods okay but he (laughs) (laughs) but he still like took them back to the station (laughs) (laughs) these sticks they were in the woods i'm gonna gonna give you a chance to, to back up your statement and listen to the words coming out of your mouth I found these two sticks in the woods. <laughs> he literally went to the woods. He found these sticks. And then he took them back to the station and marked them as evidence. These must be the murder weapon. Right. <laughs> like, that's the best I could come up with, was, like, finding some random ass sticks. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
So records also revealed that they had sent nearly 600 items from the defendant's homes to labs to be tested against like evidence they'd find at the crime scene, trying to find like anything that matches. So out of all that crime lab, out of all that, the crime lab reported finding a few fibers with quote, microscopically similar, similar <laughs> fibers to those found with the bodies. So microscopically similar. So like this could have been a shirt that was made at a Walmart, made and sent to 7,000 Walmarts. <laughs> like, it was not a match. <laughs> I'm gonna guess it's cotton. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, this is what they got. They've got microscopically similar fibers, like, like three of them. I don't know exactly how many. It was not many. <laughs> gotta be Hanes brand. <laughs> right. So, then... Fogelman gets this he gets this idea they should just like search this random ass lake that's behind the trailer that Jason lives in because <laughs> that's just something that you just randomly do right okay. <laughs> he's just like aha we should search this lake and so divers get into this lake and within 30 minutes they come up and they have this survival knife that had been buried in the mud less than 50 feet behind Jason's house Oh. how convenient for them like, <laughs> this makes big news the next day and there's an article in the paper about the discovery the article's like knife found near suspect's home and it has a picture of the diver coming up from the water with the knife in his hand now how in the hell if they randomly decide on a hunch to go search this lake would reporters know to go there and take a freaking picture of it <laughs> yeah, right. like what <laughs> We're, <laughs> hey, hey, Bob! You want to come with me to take this knife to the lake behind this this suspect's house? Um, I'm also gonna need you to bring a camera crew so that they can document me fake finding it. Right? What the hell? <laughs> they wouldn't know that. Well, and also, we need to make sure that we state it's a hunch. <laughs> it, was, it was on a hunch. There was also like an argument about whose hunch it was, by the way. So Fogelman thought about it, but then like Gitchell was like, I put it in motion. And so later there was an argument about who discovered this knife. But then eventually it was like, oh, well, Fogelman had the idea first and Gitchell just acted on it. I'm like, it wasn't a thing to act on because y'all literally just took a knife out there and was like, hey, look what I found. <laughs> like, yeah, you got a you got a kitchen knife. <laughs> Let's go take it. No, it was it was a serrated hunting knife. I know. I so, that had to be the murder weapon for sure. Had so whatever. not the two sticks that he found in the woods. So <laughs> throughout this, besides the defense not getting like any reports needed in a timely manner or like in any kind of like order or organization all that stuff they're also going through major battles with the court itself so they're trying to like get quote evidence thrown out because it's ridiculous and a lot of it was seemingly acquired through illegal searches well duh <laughs> <laughs> but judge burnett was not having anything any of this like anything defense said he was like no it's fine like well, he, yeah, was, he, he was denying everything to just have somebody in prison for this it. was a big case that would look good for him if he convicted these guys oh, yeah exactly so it's all about that's that's why i hate again i'm gonna go back to how much i hate west memphis but it literally <laughs> has to do with 
what's going to make that person look good. They give no shits. It's really, it's really true. Sorry for anybody that lives in West Memphis. It's true. I'm sorry. You have a really shitty place to live. (laughs) Your house might not be shitty. Well, we're not talking about your house. We're just talking about about your city. city Slash state slash whatever. Uh, Maybe it's different now. This was 93, but it wasn't different for us not long ago. (laughs) It ain't different. It's nice. Okay. So, so Judge Burnett's denying everything the defense has to say. Um, One of their major battles that they had was Jesse and Jason were minors. And like Damien had just turned 18, but they're still minors. Their lawyers wanted them to be tried as juveniles because they're juveniles. So Jason's lawyers pushed that he had like a bare minimum, if any, of criminal activity. He's a good student. He's never been disciplined at school. He was never a problem at home. Judge Burnett was like, yeah, well, but this is a really terrible crime. And so he needs to be tried as an adult. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it is absolutely a terrible crime, but also there's absolutely nothing that points him to this terrible crime. (laughs) Like, (sighs) meanwhile, Jesse's lawyers, they pushed that Jesse was not mentally mature enough to stand trial as an adult. His IQ was like 72. He's achieved a maximum level of of a third grader. But Judge Burnett was like, well, didn't he function in society well? And they're like, "Um, no, have you like been listening to me? Like at all? Have you listened to (laughs) any of this fucking case? Like any of this? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, he was like, "Um, not really, but due to the seriousness of the crime, he's going to have to answer to the court as an adult so again nothing connects him to this crime other than a clearly forced confession but that's cool you know what else like i just i'm just gonna keep saying it's infuriating because it is it is infuriating it's a bullshit case it's bullshit why did i do this case so it's a bunch of wet lettuce <laughs> fucking wet lettuce everywhere it's just covered in wet lettuce, like wet lettuce. <laughs> it's just oh it's tainting everything so another it's battle of lettuce <laughs> so another battle they're going through is the location of the trials so the defense was worried and with good reason that given the huge amount of publicity that this case had it'd be really really difficult to find jurors that would ignore everything that they'd seen in the media and just look at the facts of the case so everything that had been known made to the public was not looking great um to the public it looked like these three teenagers worship satan and they had sacrificed three younger boys to satan and that's like simple as that that's what the public sees so that's actually that's why what, that's what they were broadcasting right like that's what the media made it look like and so obviously it'd be really hard to find like fair jurors in this case that would just look at the facts Mm -hmm. of the case so this uh, the way the media portrayed it is actually why hbo became interested in like filming the paradise lost documentary in the first place so when they heard about it they were like well, let's see if we can film this documentary about three troubled teenagers that like snapped and murdered three young boys. So once the trial started, it became clear to the filmmakers that that was not the case at all because anybody with brains can see that. (laughs) Um, Once the trial started, um, 
yeah that was super clear obviously the film wouldn't come out until way after the trial so that was not helpful during this time um so they contacted the defendant's lawyers before the trial started to ask for exclusive interviews because they were like oh this will be cool like like try to like show everybody these young boys like snapping all that stuff or whatever Mm -hmm. and originally their lawyers were like yeah i don't know if they should do this or whatever but they agreed to it because the boys would get paid for these interviews and remember these were court court appointed lawyers so at this time there was no state funded defender system in place so everything they needed for the case they were paying for out of their own pockets like the lawyers were until they get reimbursed so money from the film would be like super helpful in paying for like defense experts and like other expenses they were needing it actually come to find out after all this it took two years after the trials before the lawyers would get paid and then they only got paid about 19 dollars an hour for the like 2000 plus hours that they spent oh my god after being told they'd make like 50 dollars an hour so like that's all super fucked up anyways but that's why they like that's why this whole documentary even happened because they're like oh we need this to help pay for this stuff that we need to try to defend these people um so back to the location of the trials uh, because i get off on tangents like super easily (laughs) um (laughs) because it's so easy because there's so many infuriating aspects anyways um the defense lawyers they were like we'd like the trials to not be local because we don't feel like they can get a fair trial here in this area so they even told the courts when they're like putting this up there they're like we asked residents to sign these affidavits to like support moving the trials and the residents were like super hostile and they were literally were like we want those sons of bitches to fry which literally proves their points that they sh- they cannot have a fair trial there <laughs> like whoa it literally proves the fact that they're literally just trying to find somebody to frame it on and it doesn't matter whether they did it or not they- right and the media literally went out there and put it in everybody's head that these guys were guilty. And so no, they were not going to have a fair trial. Like there was no way. So they pushed to get the trials moved and Judge Burnett was like, yeah, I see the news stations and the newspapers. They're like having a field day with all this and they could probably exercise like a little restraint, but I don't really see the need to move the trials out of the district. So Jesse will be tried in Corning, Arkansas, and Damien and Jesse will be tried in Jonesboro, which is the largest city in the district. So that seems fair, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Oh, he make this judge makes me crazy throughout the entire case. Like, <laughs> they never have a chance at a fair trial, but whatever. Okay. So <laughs> at one point, they're like begging Judge Burnett to help to like let them question detectives gitchell ridge and allen under oath because it didn't seem like they were getting in the reports that they needed from them they're like jesse was questioned for more than 12 hours but the transcript that we got was nowhere near 12 hours long so we should be entitled under the due process and other constitutional rights to talk to these officers and find out what happened in those other times that's not accounted for so judge burnett was like okay cool you can talk to them but like not under oath and they're like (laughs) okay but if it's not under oath that means we're going to be limited in how we can use those notes in the trial and he's like yeah well like he would not let them question them under oath like at all so we're getting real close to jesse's trial now i know it's a lot 
And but before we can get to his trial, guess what happens? What happens? So another knife gets introduced to the case. But how does this happen? Okay. So remember Mark Byers, Chris's stepdad, the one that's like always in front of the cameras when the reporters came out. Yes. So, yes. So he's like always, and he's like this big, oh, they're, they're guilty. They need to burn in hell, that stuff. So he had been like all over the HBO coming to film everything because, you know, cameras. So he'd been giving them like tons of dramatic interviews, like super, super dramatic. Um, he gave, <laughs> like, he gave all these speeches about how Damon and Je- Jason and Jesse should rot in hell and that they like murdered his son. And he even went back to the scene of the crime or where the bodies were found and made out like he was digging three graves for them and then set them on fire for the camera. Like super theatrical, ridiculous stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, it was like, it, this, all of this is in the Paradise Lost documentaries. Like you can see that. Like it's, it's crazy. So <laughs> after the documentaries are released, because of these interviews that he does, there's a ton of people that thought that at times he seemed super suspicious. <laughs> um, a lot of times he appeared to be like clearly drunk on camera. Yes. And there was there was a huge controversy over the fact that Chris appeared to have like a, a big bite mark on his face. And Mark had all of his teeth pulled in the mid-90s. And everybody was like, why? Why did you have all your teeth pulled like that? Like, why? Like, so he gave several different versions of why this happened. Um, first, he was like, oh, they got knocked out in a fight. Like, all of them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> like, they just gnaw, knocked out of my house. Out of my house. <laughs> I'm punching you, but I ain't squaring up with them. <laughs> <laughs> then, after that, then he said... <laughs> I saw what you did to this guy. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry. <laughs> like all of them just knocked him square out. Yeah, I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> God. Well, then after that, he said that he had been prescribed Tegretol, and that had caused him to get a gum disease that caused his teeth to start rotting out, even though oh. that was never named as well, a side effect you know, of Tegretol. Do what? So Butch ain't real. Got it. <laughs> right. So that was never noted as a side effect of Tegretol, by the way, but okay. Um, so none of this like helped suspicions that people were having about him. Like for a long time, tons of people thought it was him. Um, yeah. Years after the trials, he like changed his mind and he, he became like a big ag- advocator. They were innocent, like huge advocator. Um, but during all this time, he was like big on the fact that, that they did it so also terry hobbs stevie's stepdad yeah the one that was like super terrible and had no alibi and was seen with the boys that afternoon even though he said he never saw them (laughs) yeah he also had his teeth removed in the mid-90s so that's cool just saying um (laughs) better watch out for him right so mark byers (laughs) Um, he's doing all these interviews for the documentary and he decides he's going to give the filmmakers a Christmas present because he's a classy guy. So he gives them a used hunting knife that has traces of blood on it. Um, the filmmakers were like, um, 
thanks and also we don't want to be in possession of a possible murder weapon <laughs> so, <laughs> right so they didn't want to <laughs> they didn't want to accuse a possibly innocent man whose kid had just been murdered um receipt <laughs> right <laughs> like they didn't want to be like hey this guy did it but also they didn't want to have like a possible murder weapon <laughs> and they also didn't want to create a false impression that they were like trying to ma manipulate the outcome of the film at all so instead of just like going to the police they decided they were going to fedex the knife to the police because they didn't want it to be like this big huge thing okay <laughs> right okay so police get this knife they're like, oh, we got this knife that's got a blood on it. They like throw away the package, the FedEx package that came in. <laughs> okay. Um, great policing. It turns out, do what? Again. Right. Again, great policing. It turns out the blood was consistent with Chris Byers's blood, but it was also consistent with Mark Byers's blood. So back then, you know, they couldn't do like super deep, they just got like the blood type basically yeah right so um jesse's lawyers found out about this knife and they're like well we need someone needs to question buyers but it shouldn't be gitchell it should be someone else and, and at this point they're they're all in corning arkansas now because jesse's trial is like about to start like super soon like he's been moved there all this is happening um they're like the state police officials are here let's just have one of them question him and judge Burnett was like no like west memphis police should do it and look hey gitchell and ridge and mark byers are all already here in corning because they're gonna go to the trial so let's just let them do that <laughs> so this interview is actually recorded this time and it lasted 45 minutes in the beginning mark said that he had never used this knife um, he said he would have used it, but he never got a chance to go deer hunting this year. So like he never used it at all. And they're like, okay, let me explain the problem we have here. There's blood on this knife. And then Byers is like, oh, well, I can explain that. Um, you see, I got a deer this year and I was cutting it up to make deer jerky. And I used that knife, even though he just said he'd never used it. And he also never went hunting. Okay. So they're like, okay, well, there's a problem with that too. Remember, Byers is, like, friends with these guys because he was, like, undercover drug narc. Well, yeah. So they're all, like, buddy-buddy. So they're all, like, being super, like, nice to him. Like, you can hear it in the mute. They're like, okay, well, there's another problem with that. Let me just, let me explain to you. Um, the blood on this knife is consistent with Chris's blood type. And so Mark's like, I don't know how that could have happened. And then after a while he recalls that he had cut himself with the knife and since he and chris did have the same blood type that was good enough for the place they're like okay that's cool so that that was that knife <laughs> so jesse's trial began on january 26 1994 his defense argued that he had been coerced into confessing and that his confession didn't match like any of the facts because like it didn't um, meanwhile, the prosecution argued that his confession was completely voluntary and that it did, in fact, match the facts of the case. They're like, it matches and you don't match. So there. Because they're me. <laughs> right. So the defense presented the court with four witnesses saying that Jesse had went with them that night 
to an amateur wrestling event in Dias, Arkansas, 40 miles away from West Memphis at 7.30. The night that the boys went missing. So like at 7.30, he's like 40 miles away. So to this, the prosecution was basically like, um, they're probably just not remembering their dates, right? Like they just mixed up. So <laughs> there's so many times in this trial that the prosecution literally just ignores and dismisses facts. So uh, Vicki Hutchison gets on stand and she's like giving her satanic orgy story, doing all that. Um, at one point, Fogelman did get mad because he like had this great um, witness set up and it like fell through. So he was going to have this teenager named William Jones testify. And that was going to support Vicki's testimony about the Satan orgy. So Fogelman like he had a videotape that showed Jones telling the West Memphis police that one time when Damien was drunk, Damien confessed to him that he was in a satanic cult and that he raped and killed the three boys, even though they weren't raped, but whatever. Um, so while the trial's happening and before Jones is like going up to testify, he finds investigator Lax and he's like talking to him. He's like, hey, so what would happen if I got up on the stand and lied? about what I said and he's like what and so he's like okay so I lied about what I said because I don't really like Damien so he said that he made it up and he was he just like made it up and was just like talking to his mom one day about it and he's like oh mom this this kid said that he did this and to his surprise his mom called the police and the next thing he knows he was like just caught up in this big lie and he's like I'm afraid of lying under oath I don't, I don't want to do this. So Lax tells Dan Sidham, Jesse's lawyer about this. And then Sidham goes and tells Fogelman and Fogelman is like hella pissed. So he goes up to Jones and he's like, what did Lax um, say to you to make you change your story? Like, did he threaten you? And he's like, um, no. And he's like, don't be afraid. Like Lax and Jesse and Damien and Jason, they can't touch you. Like, don't be afraid. And Jones is like, um, no, I just want to tell the truth. And so Fogelman's like, so you were just going to wait until you got on the stand today to tell me this? Like, that's what you're going to do? How much did he pay you to say that? <laughs> like, so then Jones like empties his pockets and is like, nothing. I don't have any money. He didn't pay me anything. I just want to tell the truth. So Fogelman just like, gets really pissed about this, but he's like, whatever. I don't need this false testimony, whatever. <laughs> I have all this evidence so he's like I I don't need you to go on there and actually tell the truth right he's like I have plenty of evidence like I've got this there's a pair of black boots that he introduced as evidence because Jesse had said that Jason was wearing boots like in his confession so he's like here's some black boots it doesn't matter that they're not connected to anything that's cool (laughs) their evidence (laughs) he also introduced a book that Damien had called never on a broomstick because according to him Damien owning that book was evidence that Jesse was in a satanic orgy cult with him. Like, what? Okay, then. Okay. So he also, um, he called Jerry Driver. That was the probation officer that was like so obsessed with Damien before. Um, He called him to the (laughs) stand. He called him to the stand and Driver was like, I have definitely seen Jesse and Damien and Jason all walking down the street together in Marion. So there you have it. That's like, that's solid proof. Like (laughs) 
they murdered three boys. Oh, I seen it. I seen it. I seen it with my own eyes. Like what? <laughs> uh, so he like rested his case with that, and he's like, "Beat that what?" Well, <laughs> well, Bob said he saw it. I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> So Stidham, Dan Stidham, Jesse's lawyer, he tries to prove his case. <laughs> what? Are you good? I'm just thinking about that. Well, Bob said he saw him. Bob said he saw him. I rest my case. Guilty. Who is Bob? I don't know. I'm just like naming it. I was like, I'm so confused. I thought it was from like a movie or something. No. <laughs> okay. Stupid. I'm just being stupid. Continue. That damn sparkling juice is getting to you. <laughs> what sparkling juice you mean the sparkling juice that's on my because <laughs> i spilt it everywhere <laughs> jesus okay so dan stidham he's like okay <laughs> he proves his case time and time again he like calls expert witnesses like off she who specialized in the inter- police interrogations and warren holmes who was like the polygraph expert Judge Burnett would not allow these testimonies to be seen by the jury. He kept holding in-camera testimonies that were just to be like seen by them and the jury couldn't hear any of it. Like how in the hell is that supposed to be a fair trial? You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, but that was clearly never the case here. Um, In Stidham's closing argument, he pointed out all the inconsistencies in Jesse's confession and the complete lack of physical evidence. Um, meanwhile, Fogelman stressed the confession, saying it wasn't forced and was completely proving that he was guilty. So by noon the next day, the jury reached their verdict. Jesse was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Michael Moore and then an additional 20 years each for the death of Chris Byers and Stevie Branch. So with like no evidence at all, now it's not looking good for Damien and Jason. No. Their lawyers are getting worried. They're like, they're getting worried that for one, that Jesse would testify against them because the prosecution offered him a deal to lessen his time if he did. So Fogelman and Davis, the prosecutors were even secretly visiting Jesse without his lawyers knowing about it. Um. They got Judge Burnett to issue an order for um, for Jesse to be moved to Jonesboro so that he could be there to testify at Damien and Jason's trial without his lawyers even knowing that. So the only reason they knew that he'd been moved is because they saw it on TV. They like they're watching TV and they're like, it says Jesse Miskelly has been moved to Jonesboro. And they're like, what the actual fuck? Like, what's going on? So they like get in the car and they just like haul ass to Jonesboro they walk in they're like everybody stay away from my client you know whatever they go they talk to jesse they find out that they've been promising him all kinds of things including that they would bring his girlfriend there for a conjugal visit and they like brought him beer they're just like trying to bribe the shit out of him here i know i know we've done wrong to you but here's some beer here's some beer and we will bring your girlfriend here to have sex with you and also i know you're underage and you're not supposed to be drinking beer right you're 17 but here's some beer so so they're like they told the prosecutors they're like stay away from our client um judge burnett was like uh no i don't think they've engaged in any misconduct i'm ruling that he'll be allowed to testify if he wants to like they didn't do anything wrong it's fine 
what who are you like why why i can't (laughs) (laughs) the night before the trial started jesse decides that he's not going to testify against them like he was like no i'm not going to um years later he says that the prosecutors kept telling him that if he didn't testify against them then they wouldn't get convicted so he would just be stuck in prison and they would get to go home and they would go after his girlfriend as revenge for him getting them arrested they're literally just trying to like anything they can to make him say whatever the hell they want to he said that um, his dad and his stepmom are the ones that helped him make the decision on whether or not to testify because they told him that if he gets on the stand and lies, then he would have to live with that for the rest of his life. And so then he was like, oh, that doesn't seem right. Like, I shouldn't do that. Which is, again, stupid. Right. It's all so stupid. All of it. <laughs> oh, it's it's making me start to like crazy psychotic laugh it's so stupid is your eye eye twitching oh it's been twitching it's been twitching for weeks so the the Eccles Baldwin trial trial I almost did the thing again it started on February 28 1994 Fogelman literally told the jury in his opening statement he said quote as the proof develops I want to tell you in advance there's going to be a lot of testimony from the state crime lab and some of this evidence is going to be what you would call negative evidence. It doesn't really show a connection to anybody. You may wonder why we're showing you negative evidence, but we'll explain it later. <laughs> so he like straight up tells the jury, y'all, we ain't got no evidence, but like, bear with me. Also, he never explains it later. Like he never explains <laughs> that to them. <laughs> we ain't got no nev- evidence. Well, I'm going to like lead you around this big rabbit hole of shit. I'm just going to do a lot of good talking. I'm going to talk real good. I'm going to say Satan, Satan, Satan. And it's basically going to make you forget about this evidence that I don't have. <laughs> He's like evidence, shim evidence, you know, like Satan, black evidence. clothes. This guy wears black clothes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So he calls these two girls up to the stand that said they heard Damien bragging about killing the boys at a softball game. So these girls also acknowledged that they were at least 15 feet away from him at the time and that they weren't able to hear anything else that he had said the entire game, but they definitely heard that. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) Fogelman asked one of the girls when he's questioned them, he like literally said, quote, do you think he was like weird or something? (laughs) What the hell does that have to do with anything at all? (laughs) listen i'm weird <laughs> like we're all weird everybody's weird get over it that don't mean i'm killing anybody <laughs> right so more things he pointed out throughout the trial were that damien likes to read stephen king books which are my favorite by the way i, you, I like to read stephen king i love books. i've read stephen king since i was like 10 because i'm weird well, that's because our father owns like all of them yes I was obsessed, but okay. Um, he also pointed out that Jason had 15 black t-shirts with heavy red rock bands on them. Oh my God, so do I. <laughs> so like, right. So he's like pointing out all the important facts related to these. <laughs> this isn't looking good. I think I might be a murderer. <laughs> right? Raise your hand if you feel attacked right now. <laughs> I have a heavy metal band t-shirt. 99% of my wardrobe is black for sure. And name a Stephen King book. I bet I've read it. <laughs> Every time. 
Yes. So, you know, he's going through all the important facts related to these yes. murders. Like, I also have piercings. What does that mean? Well, and, he- and heavily tattooed. <laughs> heavily. <laughs> heavily tattooed. So. God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> so they had this kid, the prosecutors, they have this kid that they're going to call that was in jail with Jason at some point while he was in jail. They had this kid come up and say that Jason had confessed to him that he did kill those boys. And this kid was like, Jason told me about it in great detail. So this kid had a history of being in trouble. He'd gone to jail twice for breaking into homes and burglary. Um, when the defense was asking him about it, he was all like tied up with the, with the days, the times. He, he was like, oh, I was only there for five days in the same jail day in the same jail as Jason. And they're like, okay, for well, we know for the first 48 hours, you don't talk to anybody. So when did you meet him? And they're like, oh, I met him on the third day. And he's like, okay, so when did he confess this to you? And he was like, um, the fourth day. And he's like, okay, so within 24 hours of meeting this person, he just like confessed to you this terrible crime that he has been denying all this time. And he's like, uh, yeah, sure. Like, what? Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> That's real convincing, yes. Um, I Obviously, the prosecution had, I feel, <laughs> tried to bribe this guy into saying this because, like, why would they not? After what they did to Jesse, why would they not, like, try to find a kid who had a history of being in trouble with the law that was in the same jail as Jason? Like, why would they not, like, oh, hey, he, we'll make he you a deal zero. if you say this? Like, yeah, he had zero chance for sure. Right. They're like, oh, this kid's clearly going to get in trouble again. We can be like, hey, next time you do something if you do this then we'll just kind of look past it like i would not put that past them at all no um they also like started trying to lay some groundwork for aaron the little eight-year-old aaron to come and testify um they called a witness to the sand that said that they saw four boys go into the woods that day instead of three even though that had been one of the only consistencies in jesse's confession that there were three boys. There was never four, always three. Um, but they didn't end up calling him to stand because they were like, eh, it's pretty risky because just like Jesse, his story changes a lot because he's an eight-year-old kid. So it's not like really consistent with the crime. So um, let's see. Medical examiner, Dr. Frank Peretti. So he gets on the stand. He shocks the defense when he gets on the stand because he gives an estimated time of death between 1 a.m. and 5 to 7 in the morning. So at Jesse's trial, he had said that he couldn't give an opinion on the time of death. But now he's giving this range of times that doesn't even come close to any of the times matching up with Jesse's confession. Mm-hmm. So that should that alone should have been like reason for a mistrial for him, right? That alone should have been reason to question him again. Right. That should have been like, well, that was a mistrial. Like, this doesn't even match up. But so the lawyers tried to get Judge Burnett to be like, that was a mistrial. Like, that doesn't even match up. And he's like, no, I don't think he should be granted a new trial just based on that. Which is just based on everything. (laughs) Like, based on all of the non evidence that you have. Right. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. cool. 
So they brought in the lake knife that they had found like from a hunch behind Jason's house. Um, They brought it in and they asked Dr. Peretti if Christopher's wounds were consistent with the serrated portion of that knife. So he said that some of them, some of them were, okay. And then on cross-examination, the defense asked him and he admits that most serrated knives, not just that particular knife, could have caused those injuries. So, okay, any knife with a serrated edge could have caused those. So any steak knife, any, (laughs) any, any knife at all out there. Any serrated knife. So Damien's lawyer gave Dr. Pretty the Mark Byers blood knife that he'd given the documentary crew. Yeah. And he asked him if Christopher's injuries were consistent with wounds being inflicted by that type of knife. And again, he was like, yeah, some of them are. So, Okay. like any knives could have been consistent like what (laughs) so they started talking and they talk a lot about um chris's castration and peretti admitted that it it would have taken like time and precision and it would have been difficult to do in the dark and underwater and the lack of blood at the scene suggested that it had to have been done either underwater and the water like washed the blood away or it was done at a completely different place and where the bodies were found was just like a dumping site, not where they were murdered. So he, he admitted like, oh yeah, like all of that. Now, years after all this, now experts are saying that these injuries that were previously thought to have been done by the serrated knife could not have been made by that lake knife like at all. Now they're saying... um, that these injuries and Chris's castration were done by, they were most likely done by turtles feeding on the boys when they were underwater. So they're saying it wasn't even knives at all. It was like they got killed terribly and then were dumped in this water and then like turtles just started like feeding on them until they were found. Okay. (laughs) That's terrible, but that's also very crucial to the whole because the whole case is is around these so-called knives too as the only point of evidence they could have as well because they didn't have a murder weapon they didn't have anything right so by the third week of the trial the prosecution they had no eyewitnesses because they weren't willing to call aaron to the stand and they weren't able to call jesse because he was like i'm not doing it So all the evidence that they really had were a few fibers that were microscopically similar, um, some random ass sticks that they got from the woods like six months after the crime, and then this random ass knife that they had magically found in the lake behind one of the suspect's houses. (laughs) So knowing that they didn't have like shit, they mainly focused on the occult aspect of it. So then they start like, they're like, oh, we don't have anything. We need to like really bring on the satan shit so they kept bringing up ridiculous reasons as to why this was a satanic sacrifice so they were like these boys were all eight-year-olds and eight is a number used by witches in the wicca religion right and (laughs) there was damage on one of the boys to the left 
what <laughs> I said that's it I guess eight out of my <laughs> right okay well there oh there's more so there was damage on one of the boys to the left side of his face and that's a sign of the occult so there's super evidence also the number three as in the three victims is significant because one of the most powerful numbers in satanic belief is 666 and three is the base root of six so there you have it like this is their proof that they gave it's, it's not the most ridiculous stretch you've That's ever heard you <laughs> can't even process how stupid but okay um prosecutors also tried to cut jason a deal in the middle of these trials they were like if you just go ahead and plead guilty and testify against damien then we're just going to try to get you like 40 years with the possibility of parole and he's like um yeah no i'm not gonna say i'm guilty for a murder when i'm not and then lie on the stand and testify against my best friend they offered him this deal twice because they knew they had no real evidence like why why else (laughs) what else are they gonna offer him right so defense tried to question christopher morgan who was a 20 year old from memphis who had told police in california that he may have blacked out and killed the three boys in west memphis so he quickly recanted this statement and he said that he had only confessed in exasperation after 17 hours of questioning by the police in california which sounds super familiar right (laughs) um it sounds a little like jesse but so the defense thought if they could just question him it could at least raise like reasonable doubt against their clients so they're like wanting to question him judge Burnett's like no you can't you can't ask him you can't question him in front of the jury so again he only allowed an in-camera interview away from the public so the jury could not hear this um also throughout this the defense tried to call for mistrial several times like when the police admitted that they had lost evidence and when Jesse's confession was mentioned by one of the West Memphis detectives on the stand, even though it was not supposed to be allowed to be mentioned at all, like that's why they had separate trials. But mm-hmm. Judge Judge Burnett not denied all of this. He's like, no, I'll allow it. Like, <sighs> so on March eighteenth, nineteen ninety four, after about ten hours of deliberation, the jury had reached a verdict. So Damien and Jason were both found guilty of capital murder. And the deaths of all three boys. So there are pictures online that I saw of like pro and con lists that the juries made for each of these boys, and they're straight up fucking ridiculous. Like this is how they decided the fate of these boys and if they were guilty in murdering these poor children. Oh, so God. for Damien, some of the things first of all, for both of them, under pros, there was only like three things each. And cons had like a bunch of stuff. But for Damien under pros, they had intelligent stuck to story and loyal to family and then under his cons they had stuff like weird something to gain secondary confession slash ball field girls like what like that's what wait what yeah yeah that was their con list um there was a lot more but that's all i wrote down because i was getting mad um (laughs) for jason under pros they had school stuck to story and shows remorse that was like his only pros and then for cons they had a lot of stuff but the only ones i wrote down was 
low self-esteem because that's important in this um they wrote down knife i guess the lake knife because that showed nothing and they wrote down damien's best friend what does that have to do with the facts of the murders that has nothing to do with like this is how the jury decided (laughs) so before reading them their sentences judge Burnett asked them if there was any reason as to why the sentence should not be imposed jason said because i'm innocent and to that judge Burnett said well the jury has heard evidence that concluded otherwise like that's so freaking sad like this kid did nothing none so jason was sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole so he got life in prison for each child without the possibility of parole and damien was sentenced to death by lethal injection so the paradise lost documentary comes out in 1996 so their trials were in 94 96 documentary comes out they've been in jail for a couple years documentaries an immediate sensation like thousands of viewers are shocked by what they'd seen a lot of people assumed that since the release of the documentary all three of the defendants had appealed and that based on the problems that they had seen in the film that everything would get straightened out and the boys would be able to get out they're like oh well this is clearly ridiculous they're gonna get out that well that was not the case um three friends from la named burke Sauls, kathy backen and grove pashley so they're from la full of names i know that's la names burke Sauls, kathy backen grove pashley la (laughs) so they're they were like they watch this and they're like what the actual hell um they look into it and they're like i can't find anything that says what happened to them after they were sentenced Mm -hmm. like what's going on so they wrote they actually wrote to their lawyers and they found out that they're all still in prison nothing's changed so they're like this is bullshit um so they made a trip from la to arkansas and they met with jesse and jason and damien and they also met with dan Sidham, who was jesse's lawyer and he was the only defense lawyer that was still committed to proving that they were innocent at that time everybody else had just kind of like they were just like okay well whatever um but the whole time he never stopped working on the case he had like lost faith in the justice system. He was like, I got to do something about this. If I don't, nobody will. I know like, these kids are innocent. I a lawyer to have stuff like this happen. <laughs> right. He was like, he, he said that there were times that he wished that they were guilty so that he could move on. But he knew that they weren't, so he couldn't. Um, Burke, Kathy, and Grove were also now committed to helping the boys. They're like, I don't understand how in today's world these people can be locked up when there was absolutely no evidence proving them guilty. Zero evidence. No evidence. Like so none at all. It's <laughs> just so that that right there is what makes this whole case infuriating. Is that they literally had there wasn't it wasn't even like a a fiber that was found of theirs. There was no DNA, anything of theirs. There was literally zero well there was fibers that were microscopically similar but they're not that, that's what i'm saying like there was nothing literally right. like one of the fibers i think i think one of the fibers it was like a red fiber that was found on one of the boys and it was kind of close to a fiber that matched i want to say jason's mom's bathrobe 
So, Zero evidence. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, that's what we're working with here. But yeah, super guilty. Um, so these three people, they're like, what's going on? They started um, WM3.org, this website. This was like back when the World Wide Web was getting big, you know. Mm-hmm. So they started this website. <laughs> oh yeah, with that terrible, terrible sound in your ear holes. <laughs> Don't do the sound. Don't do the sound. <laughs> you you got to listen to the terrible sound, and then somebody picks up the phone, and it ends, and you have to do it all over again. Oh my god! <laughs> and you know how Mom likes talking on the phone. <laughs> oh my god! We never got to use this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, oh, you, the computer, you gotta like call it 12 hours ahead of time <laughs> uh, so they started this website and they started the whole huge free the west memphis three movement that like took over the nation um this movement got support of like hundreds of thousands of people that were committed to trying to get them out of prison um tons of celebrities were on board and they're like advocating for the boys there was like Metallica, Johnny Depp, Dixie Chicks, like all kind. Like that's just a couple. There was like all kinds of people. Um, they started getting tons of letters and postcards from these people. Like they were in prison. They weren't allowed to see the documentary at this point. They didn't even know what was going on. They'd just been in prison for years. They're just like, this is my life now. They start getting all these letters and stuff from people saying like, we're on your side. We know you're innocent. Like we're going to fight for you, all this stuff. Um, Damien actually started writing back and forth with an architect from New York named Lori Davis. Who is now his wife. That's now his wife, yes. She sent him, like, books because, you know, he loved reading. He loved, like, just, like, all kinds of stuff about history, like the history of all the religions and all that stuff. He loved books. Stephen King, rock on. So she sends him books. They're writing back and forth. He's finally allowed to get phone calls on death row because that's where he is. And, um. Which he was the only one that was on death row right he's getting phone calls finally most of his phone calls were to her at that point they end up really bonding she moves from new york to little rock arkansas because it was a lot closer to where it was like 45 minutes to where he was yeah and they ended up like you said getting married in 1999 on prison grounds like they had a buddhist wedding in prison because he was now a buddhist he like he changed his religion all the time he was he was just like interested in learning about all the different stuff um defense lawyers tried for several appeals throughout the next several years and they were always denied by judge Burnett. like he was not having any of it he He was taking this judge off the case he was even taking like ridiculous amounts of time to get back to the lawyers to let them know that he was denying their requests so like in may of 2001 um dan sidham wrote judge Burnett a letter and he was like I want to file a motion um, to retest certain physical evidence for DNA because like, you know, DNA, like they couldn't do that back then. Yeah, exactly. Right. And he's like, I wrote this letter to you in May, 2001. He's like, I wrote this letter to you about retesting this DNA six months ago and you haven't answered me. So um, what, what can I do it? Like what, what's happening eight months after he wrote the letter saying that he'd wrote him six months ago. <laughs> he wrote him again and was like, okay, it's been like a year. This is ridiculous. Can I request a different judge? Like what's happening? Mm-hmm. So that's in 2001. 
doesn't hear anything, whatever. Um, October 2003, Vicki Hutchison comes out and says that everything she told the police was a lie. She said the police had told her if she didn't cooperate and say all this, that her child would be taken away. So she's like, I feel really bad about it. Like, I didn't want to do it, but everything, like, I lied about everything. Okay, so that's 2003. So back to that DNA that Sidham was one tested in 2001. It wasn't tested until 2007. So when they finally tested it, none of it was found to be matches for Damien, Jason, or Jesse. Mm-hmm. So this is now when Mark Byers is like, he's doing all these interviews because that's all he does is just like interviews all the time. He's doing all these interviews now and he's like, they're innocent. Like we need to get them out. Like before he was like, burning their fake graves that he dug and like all that stuff but now he's like they're innocent oh Um, weird (laughs) now it's coming down to you look like a jackass and now he's like oh no no they're innocent we need they're innocent now yes um in july 2008 so a year after they test the dna it comes out that kent arnold who was the foreman of the jury in the Eccles baldwin trial Um, He had discussed the case with an attorney prior to deliberations, even though the jury had been put under a gag order not to talk to anyone at all about the case. And he had turned out to be like a big advocator for convicting them in the jury room. Like everybody was like, oh no, he was big on like, we got it. We got to convict them. So that was like big no-no about the like talking to somebody else and all that stuff. Like there was this big gag order, all that stuff. You can't do that. So September 2008, Judge Burnett denies the request to hold a retrial, saying that the DNA evidence was inconclusive, even though it wasn't. Um, everyone's like, what the actual fuck? Like, what? <laughs> Finally, in November of 2010, two more years later, the Arkansas Supreme Court orders a trial court judge to determine whether the DNA evidence Uh, or the evidence of the juror misconduct would like justify either a new trial or like the exoneration of the three defendants so this judge is like um yeah i would say so yeah like let's let's like do this because that doesn't make any sense so finally a hearing is set they're like okay we're, we're gonna have this hearing for like a retrial or whatever at this time judge burnett was elected to the arkansas state senate and so he wasn't able to, like, he's not allowed to hear it now. He's like in the Senate. So they, they had circuit court judge David Laser selected to replace him. So finally Burnett's like not on it anymore. I don't know why he got selected to Senate, but okay. Um, <laughs> so they're set for a hearing. Finally, in a shocking turn of events on August 19th, 2011, after 18 years and 78 days of incarceration, the West Memphis Three appeared for an unexpected circuit court session. So this is four months before their scheduled hearing to present the new evidence. Everybody's like, what the hell? What's happening? Like, this, this is not supposed to happen. So the three entered an Alford plea. So this refers to the 1970 case of North Carolina versus Alford. And it basically means that the defendant is pleading guilty while maintaining their innocence. So they're still saying that they're innocent and that they didn't commit the crime, but they're pleading guilty. So basically if they had a new trial and were found guilty again, Damien would have been like for sure executed. 
and originally Jason did not want to do this because he's like no I'm innocent like this whole time he's non-stop I'm innocent he didn't want to like do this Alfred play because he's like no I'm innocent I didn't do anything but he finally agreed to do it because he didn't want to risk Damien getting executed because he wouldn't take the deal so they entered this Alfred plea in exchange for being sentenced to time served. Um, if they were to violate the law at all at any time in the next 10 years, they would serve additional time for these murders. But like none of them did. It's been past that 10 years. They didn't. Um, so basically in the eyes of the law, technically these three are the admitted murderers of Michael Moore, Chris Byers, and Stevie Branch which is infuriating because they clearly did not do it. And those little victims will never, like they'll most likely never get justice they deserve. Like their murderers probably still out there and nobody knows who's done it. And it's just on the books that they did it. And always will be. Yep. And that is the infuriating case of the West Memphis Third. It's just so stupid. It's just all so stupid. Like, is this real life? Like, the more, the more you read about it, the more you like watch stuff. The like, the more you're like, this is not real I mean, I'm life. Not, I, I'm glad that they're not in prison anymore. Well, I yes, mean. but but 18 he years. Eighteen fucking. Eighteen years. years. Stephen Avery case. He served eighteen years before he was found not guilty on the first, and they owed him like a million dollars. And then try, then they they tried him on another case, and he's rotten in prison again. And they don't want to take him out because they'll owe him even more than that. Mm-hmm. But like these kids got nothing. It's not even about the like money or anything. They literally got branded for killing these three boys, and they still are branded to be these murderers when they're just, not. Yeah, I'm just so mad that th- there's no justice for these boys. Like zero justice zero zero and let's see chris byers so mark byers his dad his dad or stepdad or whatever the one that was like all in the front of the cameras and stuff he ended up dying a few years back in a car accident his mom melissa byers died not long like a couple years after they died and her death was like super super suspicious like, she literally just died at home in bed with Mark Byers there. And, like, there, there's still to this day no cause of death listed. Like, which, I looked all into it. They have also super weird. Like, how is that not being questioned? They have no cause of death for hers. Um, at one point in one interview, he said, when my wife was murdered. Like there was nobody there but him and the stepson who was there and like once the police got there the stepson like left all upset and like didn't come back like he went to stay with the grandparents and just stayed there um bruh (laughs) yeah um terry hobbs if y'all look into terry hobbs it looks super iffy for him like i'm back and forth between mr bojangles and terry hobbs I don't know who did it, but it was not these three. <laughs> it's it's infuriating. It is infuriating. It makes me mad every time I think about this case. I love this case. Like, 
this case doesn't it makes me mad but it doesn't make me like btk mad <laughs> oh my god and well his is just infuriating because he's a freaking bumbling fool he's just so he should have been caught long before he was <laughs> btk wanted to get caught let's just be honest <laughs> he was like if i send you this floppy disk can you trace it and they're like no <laughs> he's like cool 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 he's like here you go <laughs> here you go I'm gonna need you to go and arrest this guy. <laughs> yeah, no, he was just dumb. He's dumb, dumb. Yeah. Okay, that's it. I am done. I'm not researching for two weeks. It's on you. <laughs> it is. I actually have a case. I'm out. literally exhausted from this. Like, it's been so infuriating that my body is exhausted. <laughs> it's so funny too because at the same time I was like. Hey, Crystal, you have to do the case of the Memphis. Well, I wanted to, but I also forgot how angry it makes me. (laughs) I know. And I've been like patiently waiting for her to do this case. And then she finally does it. And I'm like, thank you. And And I'm like, like, fuck you. (laughs) Well, and I'd seen, like, I'd seen stuff. I'd heard podcasts on it. I'd seen all kinds of stuff. But I was like, well, I have this book, um, Devil's Not. And I was like, I should really read this before I do it. And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and read this and do it. And I guess, and then I just got so mad. (laughs) I still have to read that, but I'm not, I'm not done with the one that I'm reading right now. So I'm going to wait. It's so good, but it makes you so mad. Everybody should read it. I was going to say, this is actually a book that I have not read and I really want to read it. So it is on my list. It is on my list. It does. It makes me so mad. But I have um, a two-parter case next, too. So That's good. Because I, I quit for two weeks. <laughs> Buckle up. I am ready for it. Okay, girl. Well, okay. everybody follow our stuff. Follow our stuff. The gram. Please. Periolic sisters. Underscore yes. podcast. Yes. Follow us on Facey Space. Periolic sisters. True crime shit. Oh, <laughs> True crime shit. Um, send us emails. Send us messages. Let us know any of your thoughts on like the cases or any cases you want us to do or anything like that. Yeah, sure. I love hearing feedback. I um, really do. It's it's fun hearing feedback too. Like mm-hmm. we do get some some messages throughout these um, episodes of other people and their thoughts and feelings on some of these cases. It's so funny too because like me and you we get so like worked up about it sometimes <laughs> really do and then when we get these messages where the people like agree with us it's just it's great to to get the listeners point of view it's good to know that i'm just yelling for a reason and not just because i'm crazy like people I know are, and are I- feeling this too <laughs> exactly, exactly but yeah so definitely send us some feedback we love hearing it okay all right yeah. Let's be awkward. Let's be awkward. Ready? Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.